Father God, thank you so much for today and uh, for the beautiful sunny weather outside, Father. And I just uh, pray that you would illuminate us and allow us to see your truth in your word, Father, that we might uh, magnify you, that we might give all the glory and praise back to you, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Well, I just want to spend just a very short time talking about chapter 2 because chapter 3 continues a theme of chapter 2. If you remember back in chapter 2, Paul was sharing with Timothy a list of things to do. Uh, In fact, it begins, I urge you, therefore. So uh, he's he's basing this list on what uh, Paul is basing this list on what he wrote in chapter 1. So he's saying, uh, because you have been called to this duty to root out false teaching, and because God is able uh, and willing to help you in it, then I urge you, therefore, first of all, foremost, to pray. So the first thing that Paul urges Timothy to do in chapter 2 is to pray. And then secondly, he says, make sure that people, that the people of God are behaving with propriety in worship. And so he goes through a whole uh, list of things with both men and with women on how they are to behave in worship. Why? Why is he to pray? And why are the people to behave with propriety in worship? For both, he says, so that God will be honored. Uh, and, and so that the gospel may be heard. I think, I think maybe that if we distilled it down to one sentence, Paul is saying, uh, do not let your life and your conduct uh, hinder the spread of the gospel. So now Paul is going to give another thing that Timothy is supposed to do in light of the situation at Ephesus. And that third thing is going to be choosing wise leaders or making sure the leaders that are already in place are living in a way that will not hinder the spread of the gospel. Because having wise leadership, having godly leadership, uh, was vitally important to the church at Ephesus. In fact, it's vitally important for any church have wise and godly leadership. Because if, for example, the leadership is not grounded in the truth, then they will be open prey for these false teachers to come in and teach false doctrine. Or if the leaders are weak-willed, they will not have the courage to combat those who are forcefully trying to bring heresy into the church. Or if the leaders are not living lives that are in concert with the gospel, then people will not want to follow them and might instead follow these false teachers. And on it goes. Godly leadership was and is still vitally important to the church. Now, at Ephesus, they already had elders, overseers, and deacons. That actually is not true in in Crete, where Paul instructs Titus to, to choose elders. In this case, there were already elders in place. We know that. Because we learned that in Acts 20, which is a passage we'll read later on in the semester. So he already had overseers and deacons in place. So the, the point here is to say, look, make sure this is the standard they're living up to. Um, otherwise, they're not qualified. Get them out and choose other people. Um, and so he's clarifying the qualifications. Paul is clarifying for Timothy the qualifications for the church leadership. The emphasis here in this first part on overseers and overseers and for deacons is almost solely on moral integrity. Uh, his, his focus is on their behavior, on their conduct, on how they are living their lives. It is not always the 
the most intelligent or talented or charismatic person that makes the best leaders. It is the person whose life lines up with the life that Christ has called us to. So he begins by talking about the importance of this work, and, and in this case, the first part of the chapter is about overseers, which I think is a word that can be used interchangeably with elders. Now, let me just say, um, as a way of clarification, in different denominations, these sorts of positions can be called something different. Um, I grew up in Presbyterian, and, and Presbyterians have elders, which fit very much into what this is talking about, and deacons, which fit very much into what this is talking about. In the Baptist church, you have deacons that fulfill the roles here that are called elders or called overseers. So denominationally, um, the, the terms can change. In the New Testament, this, this group of people that Paul here calls overseers are sometimes called elders. So in, in the New Testament, I think those two terms can be interchanged. That probably doesn't make sense, so I won't even ask. Okay. <laughs> here, here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. So Paul at first says, here's a trustworthy saying. This is actually probably something that was said within the church, that, that if someone sets their heart on being an overseer, on being an elder, that's a, that's a noble task. That's a worthy task. And... Um, to set one's heart on, the word to set one's heart on means actually literally, literally to stretch oneself out or to aspire to, to reach for something. Uh, and this is a good aspiration. This is a noble aspiration. And in fact, it's something to be encouraged in people. But that's a good thing if this is what you desire to do. If someone, um, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, now that word overseer is this word episcopate, which is actually where the Episcopalian Church gets uh, their name from. And, and, and originally, or it shouldn't originally, it, it eventually in the church became known as, as, they became known as bishops. So those would be called bishops in what we now know as, as the Catholic Church, what became the Roman Church. Uh, were episcopate, but this is before that time. So Paul is not talking about bishops. Uh, at this point, he's just saying he's giving a term to the person who was chosen for this specific leadership, this shepherding, oversight, teaching, uh, mission, calling them an episcopate, an elder or an overseer. And then he goes on and gives the requirements <laughs> for such a person. He says, now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Now there's a lot there, and we don't have time to go through each thing, but I wanted to point out a few things that I think are very uh, important. He says that if, uh, the overseer must be above reproach, or some versions say that he must be blameless. Now this doesn't mean sinless. It can't mean that. Elders, obviously. Um, so what it means is that he is morally responsible. Uh, that, that he is careful 
and how he lives. And it also says he should be the husband of one wife, which has caused a lot of discussion among scholars. Does Paul mean he can't be a polygamist? That's possible, but polygamy has been soundly rejected by the church from the beginning. So it would be it would be a requirement to be part of the church to not be part uh, to not be a polygamist. So it's unlikely that it means that he can't have multiple wives at the same time. He may mean married only once, meaning not divorced, or if divorced, not remarried. He may mean uh, married only once in that if he is widowed, he can, must not remarry. And those are possible too. However, this same wording for husband of but one wife in other places, in fact in 1 Timothy 5, is translated as faithful, to be a faithful husband. So I think the point Paul is making here is not legalistic. It's not, if you're divorced, you can't be an elder. Or if you're a widow and you've remarried, you can't be an elder. You can only have had one wife in your lifetime. No matter how you treated her, you can, I, I don't think he's making a, a legalistic requirement here. Rather, I think he's saying that elders needed to be men who lived faithfully with their wives. Because that is the kind of behavior that would win respect, both inside and outside the church. And remember, Paul's bottom line is, do not hinder the gospel from going forward. And surely, how we live with our spouses while they are alive says more to, about our character than what we do or don't do after they're gone. I think of my mother, who never did remarry, but... The way she lived with my father, the, the, the love and the faithfulness and the respect she accorded my father throughout 47 years of marriage, including, including seven of which uh, were when he had Alzheimer's, says far more about both her love for my daddy and her character as a follower, follower of Christ than remarrying afterward would have said. So I believe what Paul is saying here is that he wants elders if they are married, he wants elders to be faithful husbands, committed husbands, loving husbands to their wives. And then it says they should be hospitable, which we kind of think as kind of a, a, a weird thing. But in ancient times, this would have been especially important. Travel was difficult. You didn't have a Super 8 on every corner like we do today. And so finding a safe place to stay could be unusual. And I will say today that a lot of people, when they visit a church, what's one of the main things they, they decide a church on? Where they from? Did I walk in and was I born? Or was I not? And so, even from the earliest times, Paul is saying, welcome people. Be hospitable. Welcoming people, especially the leaders. Certainly, if the leadership of a church was inhospitable to a stranger, it would have... Uh, inhibited the gospel from going forward. He also says that, that elders are to be able to teach. And this means not just in terms of, of knowledge, of understanding of scripture, but also in terms of ability. It should be men who are capable uh, and gifted in teaching. So these elders also filled a teaching pastor role uh, amongst themselves. Um, and then he says that they should not have, I don't want to read exactly how he says this, not 
given to drunkenness. So there is a, uh, something concerning alcohol, both in this and in the description of the de deacons. Um, and uh, this would be an ethic for all believers, um, but it would be particularly important in leaders. I, I'm going to quote um, Tim Weeby, one of our pastors here, because he just taught on this last Sunday. I like to call him the right reverend Dr. Tim Weeby, but um, this is, this, I told him this morning, I said, I'm going to misquote you this morning, because this isn't an exact quote. This is what I remember him saying. Uh, he said, the Bible nowhere prohibits the use of alcohol, but it universally prohibits drunkenness. Um, so he doesn't say elders can't drink anything ever. It does prohibit drunkenness, which the Bible prohibits for all believers. And, and part of that reason he prohibits drunkenness for a Christian leader is that it, uh, they need to be respectable and they need to be self-controlled. Nothing will blow a person's respectability and self-control quicker than alcohol. For when we misuse alcohol, we are turning a life that is supposed to be controlled by the Holy Spirit over to the control of alcohol. We are controlled by it rather than the Spirit. And nothing good happens when we do that. Um, so, and notice also on this list, how many other things would be affected by the use of alcohol? Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, able to teach. I tried to teach a Bible study once after a doctor had given me muscle relaxers. I've just got to tell you that I probably should have been excommunicated from Avery Church because that was the weirdest Bible study I've ever taught. And I've taught some weird ones. Uh, it, it, it doesn't go well to be high on something and try to teach at the same time. Gentle, not quarrelsome. Alcohol would affect all of those things, the use of alcohol. And then, then he says, uh, it makes this statement about family leadership. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Anyone who's ever had a two-year-old then cannot be an elder, obviously. <laughs> I don't think he's saying that anyone who has a wayward child is disqualified from being an elder. Uh, because we all know good Christian parents who have done their best to faithfully raise their children, only to have them turn away um, from that faith. Ladies, I was one of them. Now, I know a lot of people find that hard to believe, and my mother really actually forgot about it. Whenever I would talk about my rebelliousness, she'd go, you weren't that bad. It's called childbirth. She completely forgot about the pain that I caused her. With God bless her for that. But I was rebellious. And I had, those of you in here that knew my parents, I had amazing parents. And I still would. I am raising a prodigal son right now. Uh, and I don't think that should disqualify me from, from leadership because I know I have been a very imperfect parent. And i got to tell you that when this happens, you see all the mistakes come back to you in living color. But I also know that Jeff and I have done our best to faithfully raise our children. And I want you to notice here that the emphasis is not on the child's behavior. The emphasis is on the integrity and the character of the leader. And I think what Paul is, is saying is not, you know, if your kid runs away, or runs away or gets in trouble, you're not a leader. 
I think he's talking about the management family. Go ahead. What do you want to say? I just was wondering, do you think that it's, uh, it's meaning that it's like a requirement that you have to have children to be an elder? No, I don't. I, that's a good question. I also don't think it was a requirement that they be married, although it was probably a requirement for Pharisees, which is why some people believe that Paul either wasn't a Pharisee or had been married at some time previously because, you know, he says in his writings, I wish everyone was like I am when I'm single. So, uh, it, uh, but uh, I don't think he's saying, no, you have to have children. Most people, most men were married, and most married men had children. So I think it's just kind of the common uh, understanding. Um, I think his point is this, that if for some reason uh, a man has been, has mismanaged his family, he has, he has been abusive, he has been controlling, he has uh, been unfaithful, that that would disqualify, that that would lead to his children not respecting him, that that would lead to their rebellion, and that would disqualify him from leadership. I am an equal opportunity um, political analyst. And uh, years ago, when Bill Clinton was running for president, I said I could never vote for that man for president because he has been unfaithful to his wife, he has admitted as much, and any man who would be unfaithful to the most important vow he has ever made cannot be trusted in any vow. Now, I didn't agree with politically, so that didn't matter. But there is someone running for president right now, and I won't name names. I'm a Republican, okay? I'm not supposed to say that, but look, I come from a long line. My mother, I think I've told you this before, when she was little, she would get up, and my, my grandfather, who was uh, part of the political, Republican political party at the time, had her stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance for everybody at this Republican meeting. And she used to say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republicans for which it stands. <laughs> So this is just this is just you know, part of my heritage going way back. But there is someone on the Republican side of the ticket now who has been unfaithful more than once to his wives, and I probably line up with him ideologically more than anybody else. And I think he's got the best ideas in the group. I would never vote for him for president because I believe he doesn't have the moral moral qualifications to lead. And I think that's Paul's point. That if you have not conducted yourself faithfully with your family, then how can we trust you to conduct yourself faithfully within the family of God? Uh, and that would line up very much with what he says about wives as well. Being faithful to one's wives. To one's wives. To one's wives. <laughs> he also says that they must not be a new convert or a recent convert. I just wrote this up here because I found this very interesting. The word is neophytes. A neophyte. You must have. Now, the church was quite young at this time, but there were still people that had been walking for a longer time um, with God than, than others. And so uh, what he says is that conceit could become a problem. I also grew up in a military family, and I remember hearing the words above the zone, below the zone, all the military people out there know exactly what I'm talking about. And this has to do with promotions. And, and if you, I want to make sure I get this right. If you got promoted earlier than expected, in general, you were above the zone, and that was good. Or you were promoted in the zone, or if you got below the zone, your chances of getting promoted were small, but if you got promoted below the zone. And so there were people that if they were promoted above the zone, believe me, I met them. They thought they were all that in a bag of chips. 
Yeah. My father at one time, by the way, was the second youngest three-star general in the United States Air Force. He got promoted above his own throughout his whole career. It never went to his head. And I tell you that because what I'm going to tell you in a little bit about my dad. That's what he's saying. If you promote them above the zone, it might cause them to think more highly of themselves than they ought to. They might become conceited. And that kind of blows the whole servant leadership thing because they begin to think too highly of themselves. And then he says this weird thing. He says, uh, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the Satan judgment as the devil. What does that mean? What the devil does that mean? Um, conceit! We're so used to conceit that, that we don't, I, don't think, I don't think we accord to it the seriousness that it has. Um, conceit and arrogance. Uh, but it is that same arrogant boastful spirit that Satan exhibited in the fall. That's a serious thing. And, and to, to exhibit that same sort of conceit, thinking I'm better than everyone else, maybe better than God, is very, very dangerous. And it makes us, as he goes on to say, pray for Satan's trap. Satan loves it when we are full of ourselves. When we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And that alone should give us pause concerning our pride. Well, let me go on to the deacons. And I'm gonna, I was gonna read through the whole thing, but I'm not gonna not read through the whole thing. I'm gonna go through portion by portion. I just want to tell you that that the word deacon is diaconos uh, over here on the board, and it, it actually just meant servant. And, and it, it is translated in some places in the Bible as servant. It, it just generally means someone who serves. Within the church, it began, it became to have this more specific meaning of this position of leadership, this service-oriented position of leadership within the church. Uh, and so that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about deacons in this passage. And deacons were the ones that uh, looked over the physical needs of the church, the material needs of the people in the church, and later when there were buildings, over the needs of uh, the things that the church owned as well. There is no job description given here. There's much more of a job description given for the elders than there is for the deacons. Uh, nothing, not even that they'd be able to teach, like Paul says about the elders. But I think the reason for that is that their job description by this time must have been very well known. There were already deacons serving in the church at Ephesus. So it must have been very well known, uh, both to Paul and to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus, what that um, job description was. And, and um, it's possible that the earliest deacons were the men, the seven men that were chosen in Acts 6 to make sure that all of the widows, both Greek and Jewish, were fed, uh, were given the same amount of, of food that they needed. And I had you read that last, uh, last week, so I won't go into it. But, but they chose men, and they were not called deacons there, but they chose men that would overlook the care of the widows. Uh, and it is possible that that role is what came to be known as diaconos, as Demons. Uh, and then he goes through, with, uh, beginning with uh, verse 8, with the qualifications of a deacon. 
Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, just as the elders were to be men worthy of respect. Sincere, not indulging much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and if there, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. So a lot of these are similar to what we saw for the elders. In fact, a lot of them are what would be required of any believer or asked of any believer. In this case, he says, he begins by saying, men worthy of respect. Well, now, in the Greek, there's no men there. It says that they are to be worthy of respect. The word, the word men uh, is in the Greek, not there. Uh, however, it is assumed. Because deacons, diakonos, the word used there in the Greek is a male gender word, which is fine. There was no female gender word for that. So there would have been no option to say men and women, should be men and women of respect, because there was only a male word for deacons. So even if Paul was addressing both men and women for deacons, there was no way for him to say that. And then he goes on to say, they are to be respectful. They are to be men of respect, both respectful in how they treat others and respected by others. Anyone else hearing a wreath in their head? Uh, yes, ECT. <laughs> respect. They are to be sincere. That word literally means double tongued. They are not to be double tongued. Let your yes. Be yes. Don't say one thing to Linda and another thing to Randy. Which reminds me, by the way, I forgot at the beginning. This uh, beautiful lady sitting right here is my mother-in-law, who's come to visit us today, Betty Keener. Um, she came to visit because we're going to go shopping together afterward. And you can pray for me, not because I'm shopping with Betty, because that's delightful, but because I'm shopping for jeans, which <laughs> is probably the second worst thing to shop for. The first being. And since I am never going to shop for one of those anyway, this is about as bad as it gets. So I'm bringing along some moral support to help me out. Uh, do not be double-tongued. Do not say one thing over here and another thing over here. Be of one tongue uh, when you are speaking. And then it says they are to hold to the truths, to the deep truths of the faith. And that is not in the qualifications for elders. It, it might be because it is just assumed that those who are teaching, who have the responsibility for teaching, do hold to the deep truths of the faith. Um, but, but this word, deep truths of the faith, translates the word mysterion, which is a great word. It's a word Paul loved to use. And that word mysterion means the revealed truths, that which can only be known because God has revealed it to us. It is the essential revealed truths of the faith that they are to hold on to. And that word that says they are to keep hold of them, it, it, it gives a picture of tenaciously holding on to something and refusing to let go. I would liken it to the way Rex Burke had as opposed to Taylor Martinez. <laughs> I, I know that that sort of word picture would work better with men, but I'm a And then he goes on to say this. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect. 
not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Um, so he says, in the same way. Um, now, that word wise, their wise, is the word gun, which I know is probably giving you images of stirrups right now. <laughs> but um, it's the word gun, and, and depending on the context, context, it can mean wife, or it can mean women, which is why I brought up the word diakonos earlier. And it has been translated here, wives of. Um, but the, the word translated in the same way is a word that shows a very close connection between the women being addressed and the deacons who have just been addressed. Um, and so it is possible that he is talking here to female deacons, what would be called deaconesses. And they are to have the same qualifications in the same way. Women deacons should have these same things. It is also possible that he is instructing, as is interpreted here, the wives of deacons, um, and that they would participate or minister alongside their husbands, and so he was concerned that they be conducting their lives in a way that is worthy as well. Um, so I asked the question, could it be, is it possible that there were women in New Testament sometimes serving as deacons? And the answer to that is, I don't know. But I will tell you this, it is interesting to me that Paul addresses the wives of the deacons, but he does not address the wives of the overseers. Um, and, and that is perhaps because the wives of overseers were less likely to minister alongside them. Um, but it is also possible that there were women that were serving as deacons within the church. Uh, and, and, and serving a woman serving as a deacon, I don't think would conflict with chapter 2. Because based on what I see as the role of a deacon, it is a position of leadership, but not a position of authority. An elder would definitely be a position of authority. Uh, and then I also told you about uh, Romans 16, where a woman named Phoebe, by the way, I was on the same Phoebe. Isn't that interesting? My mother's best friend's name was Phoebe. And they came in, and the nurse came in and said, What are you going to name her? And my mom said, We're thinking about Phoebe. And the nurse said, Phoebe? Why would you name her Phoebe? That's what I'm going to name her Phoebe. So I'm grateful, actually, for that nurse. <laughs> Ephesus are diagnosis. 
don't know what the plural would be. <laughs> it's possible. Uh, it is impossible to answer that definitively, and I know it's almost uh, probably a little bit controversial even to bring up the possibility. But it seems to me that at very least, a deacon's wife was to share his ministry, was to minister alongside him. That may have simply have been if he went to minister with women to keep him from getting into trouble when he ministered to women. But at very least, they were involved in the ministry, or else Paul wouldn't have addressed them. And then it goes back to more um, of the qualifications of a deacon. A deacon must again be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So again, we see this idea of family life, that, that a deacon was to live faithfully uh, with his, his wife, and if there were women with her husband, and carrying out the task of parenthood um, with diligence and with godliness. All throughout this description of both uh, overseers and deacons, we have had a picture of integrity within church leadership. And that word integrity comes from, from metal that is said to have integrity if it is the same all the way through. It has no impurity in it. And so integrity, to have integrity means that someone is the same all the way through. No matter who they are with, what they are doing, if they're with a group of people or they're alone, their behavior is always the same. They behave in a way that is godly. And that, that sort of person can be counted on. That sort of person uh, won't, won't surprise us with a lapse of moral judgment. Because they are the same all the way through. And this is, this is vitally important because an unbelieving world is watching. Perhaps even kings and those in authority are watching. And so believers, and particularly uh, leaders in the church, must be people of integrity. When I think of the word integrity, the first person I think of, as any of you who knew him will say, and it may be one of the first people you thought, is my dad. My daddy, if you would have met him, would have never guessed that the man was successful. Well, if he had been an outsider, you really wouldn't have guessed it. But he was the same. He was the same when he was with world leaders, he had integrity, and, and he was a, a man of his word. And when he was, he, when, when he was uh, starting to have Alzheimer's, he wanted to be involved in something. And so he gave Bob Timberlake a call at the Open Door Mission. And he said, Bob, I want to serve. I don't want to be on your board. I don't want to lead an initiative. I, what I want to do is I want to mentor a homeless man. Because I can still do it. I can still drive. I can still think. And before I lose it, I'm not a mentor. That's the way my daddy was throughout his life. He was, he was an elder too, but he was a man of integrity. And Paul is telling us, not just leaders, ladies, with very few exceptions, we're all supposed to exhibit these sorts of qualities. And then he says, those who have served well gain an excellent standing. I, I know that Paul doesn't say that they gain a reward or a promotion. Uh, it's possible that he means they gain excellent standing before God. But I think mostly what Paul is saying is that they, they gain an excellent
excellent standing and influence for the gospel in the community, both inside and outside the church. And then he says, and this service will give them great assurance in their own faith. And anyone who has served knows this is true, that as we serve, our own faith is bolstered. I talk to ladies a lot about World Family Camp, and I could give you stories from now until next Tuesday about the ways I've seen God work at camp that can only be God. There was one time in particular when I was putting a little girl to sleep who could not fall asleep. She would keep talking to you and talking to you and talking to you so that she wouldn't have to fall asleep. And most of the kids at camp have trouble falling asleep because, you see, they're victims of abuse. And the times when they were abused the most were when someone would come into their bedroom at night. And so she didn't know she would be safe if she fell asleep, so she didn't want to. So I sat by her bed, and I rubbed her back, and I sang to her until my voice gave out. And so I turned to the other woman in the room and said, turn on whatever they have on the CD player there. She turns it on, it's a Twilight Paris going to sleep record. And it says, then I'm going to bed song. And I did not know that it was on repeat. <laughs> so I played on putting on the jammies and I'm going to bed. And then I played on putting on the jammies and I'm going to just So about the fourth time we heard the same song, I'm like, please. Uh, end the repeat thing. And I played the second song. And the second song was a song, an old hymn, that probably none of you know, called When He Cometh. That song is a song that my mother sang me to sleep to that her mother sang her to sleep to. It is such an obscure song that it is in most hymnals anymore. And yet Twilight Paris put it on a CD. And a camp counselor put it in a CD player. And it was the song that was played as I was putting this little girl to sleep. By the end of the song, I knew she was asleep. Coincidence? Maybe, but I think not. God was at work not only in that little girl's life to say, you are sick. But in my life, as well. And we have that faith, that assurance of our faith as we serve. I remember saying, I've said this actually a lot of times to my brother-in-law once, look, I know I keep getting invited to this leadership summit thing and I keep going, but I'm not a leader. And I really don't think I am. Everybody who thinks they want me to lead their thing, what they really want is me to stand up in front and talk to people because after that, I'm useless. If you want me to organize anything, no. You will be so mad at me by the time it's over because nothing will be organized. Um, and so I said, well, I'm not a leader. And those said very politely, because he's very quiet, said, you know, Amy, if you define leadership as having people within your sphere of influence, then you are a leader. And that is true of all of us. So with very few exceptions on this list, I believe we're all called to this kind of life. In fact, Walter, Walter Liefeld says of deacons, they should be deacons before they are named deacons. And so should we all. And then Paul ends with this hymn of praise um, in verses 14 and 15, and then verse 16 is a hymn of praise. He begins by saying this, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of and foundation of the truth. And so he says that, 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 that it is the church of the living God 
And the whole purpose of these last two chapters that we have read, chapters 2 and 3, is that the people of God are to be praying and acting with propriety and worship and living their lives in all godliness and holiness because the world is watching. But there's also this doctrinal emphasis in this. Uh, and when he says that the, that the church is the pillar and the foundation of truth, he may be calling to mind the temple of the Old Testament, which was the place where God dwelt, who now dwells within his people who make up the church. He is the living God who lives in us. And then finally, he writes this, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body that was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached about among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. Beyond all question, the mystery, the mysterion of godliness is great. God's revelation of his sovereign work throughout time is great. But most especially, Paul is referencing God's plan of salvation that he has provided for us in Christ. The mystery that is in fact Christ himself. As Colossians 1 says, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he makes it obvious that Christ is this mystery because then he goes on to quote what was probably a hymn of the day, possibly written by Paul, we don't know. And the focus of this hymn is action. He appeared. He was vindicated. He was seen. He was preached. He was believed. He was taken up. These are the essential truths of the faith being given to us here. Jesus came in the flesh in his incarnation, which presupposes his preexistence. This mystery of Jesus, Paul is saying, has been made known to us. He came and was born in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That's probably referring to his resurrection. It's possible it wasn't. I don't have time to go into it. Ask me later if you want to know. He ascended into heaven. He has been preached and been believed on to all the nations. Think about this. He came as a Hebrew baby. And he became the Christ of the nations. We should and in fact, I believe Paul is saying the angels marvel at that. It's hard to know what he means by was seen by angels, but I think it means the angels are out there going, dude, Michael, check this out. Look what he's doing now. He's feeding 5,000 people. I think they marvel at God's plan, at God's mysterium in the world. Um, and it is something that we should marvel at too. These are the essential truths of the faith that the church needs to grab hold of, um, and that they'll need to combat the false teachers, which is the next thing Paul is going to address in this letter. And so this hymn is like the crux that the whole letter turns on. That because of, uh, of who Jesus is, you need to be living this way, and because of who Jesus is, you will be able to combat these false teachers. The purpose of this hymn that was written here um, is, is beyond just emphasizing the importance of doctrine, although that is important. And it be, is beyond just emphasizing the importance of worship, although that is important. Dr. Liefeld says the function of the hymn is apparently to remind the believers at Ephesus, through Timothy, 
about the foundation of the church that cannot be destroyed by false teachers. And I would add, it cannot be destroyed by anything. No scheme of man, no scheme of hell, no force of evil, no force of nature can shake the unshakable foundation of the church, which is, in fact, Jesus Christ himself. It is as true today as it was in AD 60-whatever when Paul wrote this passage. And that should cause us to worship as well. And I believe the purpose of worship, of hymns, of singing, is to praise the triune God for who he is and what he has done. Now, there are a lot of songs out there that we sing in church that are about our relationship with God or our love for God or our need for God. And I don't see anything wrong with those. But we need to go beyond that if we're truly going to worship uh, and go deeper and focus ourselves uh, and have our focus placed squarely on God, on Christ, and on the Spirit. And so I'd like to end today just reading you a little bit of three different songs. One is really, truly an oldie, a hymn, a beautiful hymn. And, and oh, actually, no, that's not the first one. Sorry. This one's an oldie, it's not really an oldie, but it's probably older than most of you. Anybody remember Keith Green? Ah, yeah. This is a simple song, I wish I could sing, but I can't. But it is profound. There is a redeemer, Jesus God's own son, precious lamb of God, Messiah, holy one. Thank you, O oh my Father, for giving us your son and leaving your spirit to the work on earth is done. Jesus, my redeemer, name above all names, Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, hope for sinners slain. The focus is on Christ. And this true holy, look at what this says about God. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above. Oh, gratefully sing His power and His love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilion and splendor, and worthy of praise. Oh, tell of His might, oh, sing of His grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space. His chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds form. And dark is his path on the wings of the storm. Frail children of dust and feeble as frail, in you do we trust, or find you fail. Your mercy how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. O measureless might, ineffable love, I love that word ineffable. While angels delight to him you love, the humbler creation, no people that lives, with true adoration, shall sing to your praise. And then a recent song, which is by a guy named Steve Fee, who I think writes some of the most beautiful hymns for the modern church. Giver of every breath I take, author of all eternity, uh, breath I breathe, author of all eternity, hear of every perfect thing, to you be the glory. Maker of heaven and of earth, no one can comprehend your worth. King over all the universe, to you be the glory. And I'm alive because I'm alive in you. And it's all because of Jesus I'm alive. All because of the blood of Jesus Christ that covers me and raised the dead in his life. It's all because of Jesus I'm alive. My point is that it doesn't matter the style of worship. It matters the focus of our worship. We are created to worship. I believe we're created to sing. And we will worship something. So let's make sure that our worship is reserved for and unreserved toward the only one who is worthy of that worship. Let's pray. We worship the King, all glorious above. 
Oh, gratefully sing his power and his love, our shield and defender in the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and filled with praise. Father, we praise you for all that you are and all that you've done. Help us to grow in that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies.